All right, well, there's a few of us here left. Wow, that's like a cleared out, didn't it? Oh, it's all right. Well, you know, <clears throat> we're just doing a, a little series this, this month of special, you know, messages anyway on a special focus. And, uh, and last week, we, uh, we began taking, look, uh, taking a look at the problems that um, have led and do lead so many people to miss, to miss Christmas every year. And um, the first, uh, first place we looked at last week was at Bethlehem. We took a look at Bethlehem and at the, uh, the innkeeper, or at least we assumed there was an innkeeper there. And um, we saw how, uh, we looked at, well, how could they have missed the coming of Jesus? Um, and the primary reason that we looked at last week was a preoccupation. They were simply just too busy to notice it. Uh, there was a national census taking place. The emperor had decreed it. And so Bethlehem, like many of the towns and villages, would have been packed with people and uh, would have been very difficult for them to notice such a thing. And and that really is the case even today. The busyness of the season, the busyness of our own lives can lead to a, a preoccupation of, of things, not necessarily bad, but just earthly uh, tasks, um, even preparation for all the traditional things. And those things can just sort of squeeze Jesus out of the season entirely. And we have to be very careful uh, about, about that. And as I mentioned last week, the observance of Christmas itself, um, the, 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 the observance of Christ being born on the 25th, even though we don't think he was probably born on the 25th, and where that came from and all that. Uh, just to clarify, um, that is not a matter of right or wrong. Um, I, I don't even get involved in those debates because Scripture is just too utterly clear about that. Um, it's, it's, it has nothing to, to do with that. And let me just take you to Romans 14 just to uh, show you. Romans 14. Paul says this, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who eats does, who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. So, so the idea here is that for the believer, every day and everything we do in every day is meant to bring glory to God. Does that make sense? Everything. Um, and so it does not matter if someone chooses to celebrate Christmas and someone does not. Everything can be done for the glory of God. And that's what Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. So there's nothing wrong with the observance of, the celebration of Christmas. How we observe and celebrate, that is where the issue comes into play. Are we just so busy with the details, so busy with the uh, minutiae, like a Martha, too busy to sit at the feet of Jesus? That's really the whole point. And if we find ourselves that way, then we have to admit that it has become about our own sinful self-gratification, and not uh, about Jesus. It's not for his uh, glory. So that's just to clarify that point. We have to be guarding ourselves from taking the glory away from Christ and, 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 and making sure that it really is on him in everything we, we do. So preoccupation, preoccupation with the details, the busyness of the celebration, that causes people to miss Christmas every day. But there's another problem that leads to 
of people missing Christmas. And this is the second one we're going to look at, and uh, and it's a big one. It is pride. Pride. And we see this most clearly in the example of King Herod. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 2. Last week we were in Luke. Uh, here we'll go to Matthew. Matthew also gives us the account of Jesus' birth. He's the one that gives us the account of these wise men that came from the east. So Matthew chapter 2 also describes the whole situation with King Herod. So let's look at it. It's Matthew chapter 2, and uh, we'll look at a lot of it, but I'll just read the first eight verses just so we get an idea. Matthew chapter 2, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, in order to understand King Herod's uh, issue uh, here, you need to know some things about King Herod. Uh, King Herod was not a great man, although he was known as the Great, Herod the Great. Uh, he was uh, an Idumean, which means he was a descendant, the successors of the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So he was a successor of that. So he was not himself 100% Jewish. And his father was Antipater, and he had earned favor with Rome. And because, uh, because he had such great favor with Rome, he was given, his family was given the right to rule the region of Judea, even as a, 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 a non-Jew and also not as a, a, a Roman. In fact, let me show you the, the map here. You got to remember that Israel was divided up into these regions and, and different uh, tetrarchs ruled over these different, uh, different regions. And so when you look up at the top in the north, that's the uh, yellow, greenish-looking thing up there. That's Galilee. And in Galilee, the region of Galilee, that's where you'd find Nazareth. And that's where Jesus would have been raised as a child. We'd grown up in there, Nazareth, in that area, in the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he did a lot of his ministry in the north. And then in the middle there, you see Samaria. And that's the area that the Jews tried to go around because they couldn't pass through uh, Samaritan land. So they'd go uh, to the east of the Jordan through Perea. When you come down to the brown part down there, that's Judea. And in Judea, you find the cities of Jerusalem, and you find Bethlehem. That's the region that Herod uh, had control of. And Judea, at the time, obviously all of it, was under Roman occupation. But because he had such great favor with uh, Rome, he was given an army. um, He was given lots of resources. And so he did everything he could to just um, really keep that good standing with, with Rome. And so one of the things uh, he did, he did a lot of building projects. He was known, uh, known for that. He became no, no, notorious for that. But he 
was um, insisted on being a king, and he gave himself the title King of the Jews. So that was for himself. He wasn't officially named that, but he was granted that. And so he was granted this army, because a king must have an army, um, and he used that army to intimidate the Jewish people. He uh, taxed them heavily, and of course that made Rome happy, and so he had a great relationship with Rome. But that was the only good relationship Herod had. If you know anything about Herod, you know that he had a horrible, horrible relationships with family, uh, with his wife, with his uh, sons, because he was just ruthless. Um, if you know any of the history at all, he murdered the entire Hasmonean uh, family. So the Hasmoneans were the sons of the Maccabeans. You heard of the great Maccabean revolt against the Grecian rule? Okay, he knew about that. Well, these were the sons of the Maccabeans, and he knew that they had this uh, propensity to revolt. He didn't want any revolt during his power, so he wiped them all out, the Hasmoneans, gone. He had 10 wives. He had 12 sons. One of his wives, uh, Merimne, and he actually had two with that uh, name, had a brother who was the high priest. His name was Aristobulus, and Herod murdered him, the high priest, because he thought he and his wife were conspiring against him, somehow plotting against him to take his throne, so he just killed him. He murdered his two eldest sons, just uh, killed them. And that was for the same reason. He was just a ruthless man. He did not care about those relationships. He cared more about keeping his power. And on his deathbed, he knew that no one would weep for his death because he was not a liked man. And so he took the most distinguished citizens of the city of, of, of um, Jerusalem. He put them in prison and he commanded that they be put to death on the day of his death so that there would be weeping when he died even though if they weren't weeping for him. This guy was pretty rough. So it's not surprising to see his reaction then, it shouldn't be, to the question that comes from these wise men. Oh, hello, king. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? To this man. Someone's born with my title? Because I just gave that title to myself. What's he thinking? Well, that guy's gone this is a troubling, troubling question. So someone was born king of the Jews. They're, they're talking about someone with the birthright to his throne. That is a threatening thing to King Herod. And so when you read in verse 3, it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all Jerusalem be troubled over this thing? Because Herod was troubled. He was so ticked off, agitated, distressed, that's the word there, uh, that he made sure everybody knew it. You see, Herod feared losing his power and position. There's someone born with my title. Someone might take that, and he was not above killing to protect that. Now, I've talked about fear uh, before. I've talked about how fear uh, and lust are two sides of the same coin. If uh, we, we, we lust for power, like uh, Herod, lust for power, then we're going to fear whatever might threaten that power. Lust and fear. You see that? If we lust for human approval, then we're going to fear human disapproval. They work together. So um, we fear rejection, we'll lust for acceptance, and on and on it, it goes. Let me give you a scriptural example of that in Hebrews chapter 13. We'll probably be there in a few uh, weeks. Verses 5 to 6, he says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Now, notice the author of Hebrews does something interesting. He places covetousness. He places discontentment in a direct relationship with being afraid. Fear. When we fear what mankind will do to us in this world, then we're going to love for whatever will provide our security. When we lust for whatever may provide our security in this world, we're going to fear what may threaten the possession of that object. So our lust and our fear will be fastened upon the same object. That's the, the point. And fear's origin, just like uh, lust, uh, originates in pride, its self-rule. I am the king. I rule my life. I sit on my throne. And that is the idea here. For those who um, travel down the road of fear, it is a desire, a sinful desire that originates in the heart. And it is a desire that wants to control or preserve what they have. This is my kingdom and no one will take it from me. That is Herod. Lust is different. It originates in the heart as well. It's a sinful thing, but that desire is to control or obtain what we want. One is what we want, getting what we want. The other is protecting what we have. Herod feared the possibility that another king, a king of the Jews, would come and replace him. And so he sought to control, preserve his power, and he did it through intrigue. He got crafty with these wise men. He decided that he would play the part of a potential worshiper. Oh, there is a king of the the Jews that's going to be born, a one rightfully born. Well, oh, I I would want to worship him too. Look at verses 7 to 8. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Yeah. He doesn't really want to worship. Uh, And we find that out a few verses later because the wise men do find Jesus. We know the story. They do go worship him, but they don't report back to Herod. We find out why in verse 12. Very interestingly, verse 12 says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. See, the, 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 the child Jesus was being divinely protected. No, no uh, ruler on earth was going to threaten anything that was taking place here, even though he thought he, he could. And so God just circumvented that by going through the supernatural. Like, I'll just talk to these guys in a dream. Yeah, don't go back to Herod. And so they don't. And so his plan sounded good, right? Here's some guys looking for the king. I'll pretend to want him to. I'll pretend to want to worship him. You just come back and bring word to me. Now, you think about this. This is your plan. You've laid it. There's nothing that can hamper it except the fact that the the men don't come back to you. The wise men hightail it back for home. What happens? What's your reaction? Well, his reaction is uh, one of fury. He became, we're told, exceedingly angry. Um, Look at verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, with what I told you just about Herod, just a little bit we know about him, 
And what we see him trying to do here, it doesn't seem so far-fetched that he would go and try to stop this by just, I'll just kill all the children. I mean, he killed his wives, he killed his sons, he killed all the Hasmoneans. But would you be surprised to know that most liberal scholars and historians believe that Matthew just uses this as a literary device, that it's not actual fact? That Herod wouldn't actually go to that length and just kill all. It's probably just a literary device to say this is how angry he really would have been or he would be. Nonsense. It's rubbish. I know it's rubbish for two reasons. One, Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31 to demonstrate that it fulfilled prophecy. His actions actually fulfilled what Jeremiah the prophet warned of. There would be weeping because there were no more children because Herod would wipe them out. Not only that, I think his, the actions described in Matthew are consistent with his character. This man, of course, would have done something like this. That's the natural response when, out of fear, our efforts to control, our efforts to preserve what we have, when that fails, there's only one place you go. You get angry. You just take that down a notch to your own little worlds, right? Our own little worlds, we try to control and preserve these things. And then, like, I am trying to make this happen. And when it doesn't happen... We get angry. He got angry. We're told exceedingly angry. Anger beyond measure is the idea there. He was a paranoid, fearful man. But what did he fear? He, he feared losing his position in power. <clears throat> and that was because of pride. So in an effort to preserve his power, he wiped out all the male children of Bethlehem two years and younger. Now, that's a shocking description there we have in the count of the birth of Jesus that's surrounded by so much you know great you think about the songs that we sing and oh holy night and the angels singing and all these things and here's a man at the same time going out and killing all these young people and that is a shocking thing but there's something even more shocking there were others that existed in Herod's day who also exhibited pride and because they did they missed the birth of the savior they are the religious leaders when you look at Matthew's account according to verse 4 Look at it again. It says this, When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then they, they quote Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is, this is why this is shocking. These are the theological experts of the day. He says, okay. I'll call these, these experts and I'll ask them if there is a prophecy that exists that predicts not only the birth of this king of the Jews, but where, where is he to be born? Because if I can find out where, then I can prevent it. And they come and they say, oh yeah, it's, it's in Micah 5, 5, 2. He was going to be born in, in Bethlehem. That's the, where the Messiah is going to come from. That's where all the Jewish people were hoping for. They were hoping for this Messiah, particularly as they were under Roman occupation. And the reason they were hoping for that is they believed that Moses had uh, promised a prophet like him to be born. Remember, Moses was their hero. And and so when Moses prophesied of another prophet like him, they thought, well, that's what we got to be looking for. And he prophesied of that in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. That's what they were looking for. That's what the people want. But here's what I've always wondered about this biblical account. 
why didn't any of these religious leaders, any of these theological experts, why don't we see them in Bethlehem worshiping? I mean, why, why do we have shepherds? Why do we have some wise men from the east? Where were these guys? I mean, they told Herod the answer. Yeah, he's going to be in Bethlehem. They never show up. And, and scripture never tells us that they had anything to do with that. The only clues we have are to, to look at the New Testament accounts of the religious leaders that still existed when Jesus was in his ministry. When you look at Jesus's ministry and it's full blown and, it's, and, and he's popular and he's gaining all this popularity primarily because he was such a miracle worker, you got to remember that disease was eradicated from that region. I mean, there was, nobody was sick. Jesus was knocking it all out. And the religious leaders had to deal with this. They say, listen, he's just becoming too, too popular. What are we going to do about this? And remember, the chief priests and the scribes, just like we're gathered here, they were gathered together to discuss what do we do about Jesus. And in John chapter 11, verses 47 to 48, you remember this, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs, many, many miracles. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. The, the problem wasn't that people would believe in him. The problem was that if people believed in him, then the Romans would come and take away their place and nation. What was their problem? The same as Herod's, his pride, pride. They feared losing <coughs> their power. They feared losing their position and what did they resort to? Putting to death the Messiah. Herod put to death a bunch of young male children, true. But Jesus was God in the flesh, and they put him to death because of pride. Pride is an issue, is it not? Pride is the root issue. It's the root sin in history, but it's also the root sin in prehistory even before the worlds were formed. We're told that that was the issue with Satan. And I kind of just want to go back and look at a review of pride to see how this can be such an issue and what does the Bible say we can do about it. In Ezekiel 28, 14 to 15, we're told this about Satan. You were the anointed cherub uh, who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. You were, you were perfect. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were in his very presence and you had all these amazing things. You had an anointing from him and, 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 and all this was great until sin was found in you, until iniquity was found. What was that sin? Two verses later, we're told in verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before the kings that they might gaze at you. He was an anointed cherub. He was perfect. He was beautiful. And Satan began to fixate on those things about himself. I am perfect. I am powerful. I am beautiful. And you know, there's indeed some beautiful people in our world. And, and don't we just get fixated on the beautiful people of the world? And that's why the fashion industry, the modeling industry exists. We take the beautiful people of the world and we put them up and we said, this is the standard of, of, of beauty. 
And, and for, for, for a long time, I mean, that was it. It was sort of this unreachable, you know, if you're a, a model or, but, but now with social media and TikTok and all these things, everybody wants to go and, and flaunt their beauty. And they want to put it out there because they all want to be part uh, of this. Young girls, women, men too, using these tools because they want to get the responses that they desire, the followers that they desire. There's so much of it out there. Look at me. I'm beautiful too. I'm beautiful too. And listen, God created us. I believe that we were knitted together in our mother's womb. And so he is the one that has fashioned us beauty, physical beauty, or, or in your terms, not. It all comes from him, which is why we're not told to fixate on our beauty. But Satan did. The psalmist tells us the beauty that we are to, to desire. In Psalm 27, 4, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And here it is, to behold the beauty of the Lord. <laughs> Why do I want to be in the temple of the Lord? Why do I want to be in the house of the Lord? Because I want to behold his beauty. It's not, it's not the world's standard of beauty, but we're fixated on it, folks. And it's pride. And it takes it away from from God, the one who is beauty. He defines beauty. He is beauty. I think that's one of the reasons we have such vivid descriptions in Revelation of, of uh, the, the, the city, you know, coming down from heaven and all the colors that are listed there and all the, um, the ideas of the light and shining through transparency. All those things are to evoke beauty. You think you know beauty, you know nothing. This is the dwelling place of God. It's real beauty. It's magnificent. But we focus on the, the temporary beauty. And, 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 and Satan's pride was the same place. I'm this beautiful, anointed, powerful cherub. And so Isaiah tells us what that, that prideful, lifted heart, what, what, where that took him. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 to 14, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's Satan's thoughts. Well, if I'm this great, I could be, I could be bigger than God. I could be greater than him. You see, Herod's response was fear. Satan's was lust. Lust and fear, two sides of the same coin, both rooted in pride. And since pride was the cause of Satan's downfall, then his entire world system, the whole world system that we live in, is designed to appeal to man's pride. That's what it's designed to do because he wants to see our downfall. He wants us to, to, to succumb to the same sin that, that he does. And, and John tells us that everything in the world is geared toward your pride. That's not just my opinion. John tells us that in 1 John two sixteen, for all that is in the world, not, not some of the things in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's the design of the world, is to cause us to lust after all of these things, and it's rooted in pride. It's the pride of life. Isn't it interesting today that the very actions and attitudes of the heart that the Bible condemns are the very things people openly celebrate and embrace today with pride? We have pride marches and pride weeks and now pride months, and I'm sure there'll be pride years. Pride was Herod's problem. And 
And there are the tons of Herods today. And you don't have to participate in a, a pride march to demonstrate that. Pride is the root issue behind every, everyone who won't allow anything or anyone to interfere with their plans, with their careers, with their ambitions, with their lifestyle. They, like Herod, want to keep their position and their power. And so year after year, Christmas comes and Christmas goes, and they miss it completely because Christ came to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came to rule in the hearts of people, and when you shut them out, you miss it altogether. They have no room for Jesus in their lives. You know, some are willing to make uh, a little room. They uh, brace Jesus, but he's a kind of a a spiritual benefactor. He's uh, someone who's a great resource in times of trouble, someone we like to have there in our back pocket, you know, maybe I can throw up a prayer when I, when I, when I need him. Some even add, them, add him to their lives, and they, they, they take on the name Christian. But, but not if he insists on being king. I, I draw the line there, they say. I love Jesus, but he better not mess with my plans or my, my lifestyle. That's not how it works. Pride interferes with the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. So how do we battle against pride? It's prevalent. We all battle it. It's our root sin issue. How do we overcome it? There's just one word that Scripture gives us, and it's humility. One word. Pride is such a huge issue in all of us, so the Bible has a lot to say about the solution. I love that. I love that we don't just have to figure it out. The Bible talks a lot about humility. And I'm just going to show you... um, several verses kind of rapidly, so you, you don't have time to look them up, or, or, but you can just write down the references if you want. But just to give you an example of how much um, the humble are talked of in Scripture, look at Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. God says, if my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. What's it begin with? If my people will just humble themselves and turn to me, come to me. They're going this way because they think they have their lives together, and they don't. Humble yourself, turn to me, then I'll hear, then I'll forgive. In Psalm 10, 17, Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. See, he hears the humble. Psalm 18, 27, for you will save the humble people but will bring down haughty looks. See, only the humble can be saved. Psalm 25, 9, the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Why are the, only the humble taught his way? Because the humble are teachable. If you're not humble, you're not teachable. No one can teach me. I know it all. You must be humble. Psalm 149, 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Where's beauty actually found? It's in that salvation that you can't get on your own. It's a salvation that comes from God when you humble yourself. You know, Moses, the great leader of God's people, was the most humble man that ever lived. If Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, Moses was the most humble, which is hard to believe when he led a nation for so many years that he would be called a humble man. But doesn't that say something about his success as a leader? Because He didn't base it upon what the people thought of him or said of him because the people were pretty crummy to him most of the time. Who is this Moses? Get rid of him. We don't want him. There's no water. There's no manna. There's no food. They were horrible. Yeah. 
He had to be a humble man to be the leader he was. Daniel set his heart to understand the things of God. His actions were seen as a sign of humility. And so an angel was visited, uh, given to him to visit him, to give him encouragement and comfort during a, a, a tough time. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, then he said to me, do not fear Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. You know, both James and Peter talk about humility. They both quote Proverbs 3, 34. I'll just show you James. James 4, 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a reference to Proverbs 3, 34. And because of that truth, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The wickedness of pride prevails today. People everywhere will miss Christmas this year because of pride. How do we, how do we, do, how do we battle this? How do a naturally prideful people become humble? I remember joking with someone who was talking about who's more humble and said, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to get a license plate that says humbler. <laughs> you get a license plate that says humbler, you've already blown it. All right. But listen, scripture does speak to this. There is, there is a path to humility. And I want to take you there. It's in James chapter four, James chapter four. And I know Rooted is going through James. I'm not trying to steal your thunder. I'm just talking about it a little bit here. James chapter four. I just want to look at the, uh, what, what, what he says here about this very important issue. You know, James is talking about, he's trying to answer the question of where arguments and, 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 and bickering and quarreling comes from. And he says, it ultimately comes from pride. <laughs> well, he's right. But in James chapter four, verse one, it says this, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. There's a lust again. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How do we fix the problem of pride? There's a few points in here in this passage that I want to bring out for you to in, in closing that will help us see the solution uh, here. The solution begins with his command to submit to God. You know, you've, you've got to become subject to God, but how do you get there? That's, that's humility, isn't it? I mean, humility is subjecting your life to him. It's in verse, um, verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The first is to draw near to God. Draw near to God. That's where it begins. You won't, will not find humility outside of God. You won't find it. Remember, Paul 
says in Colossians, he's talking about the people who are ascetics. They, they go and they cut themselves off, off from the world, right? Oh, I won't eat anything sinful. I won't watch anything sinful. He says, listen, that's false. What's he call it? Humility. False humility. Those things are, are false paths to humility. None of those things will lead you to humility. Humility is only found in the presence of God, which is why we're told here to draw near to him. Draw near to God. Now, how do we do that? Please, please tell me you can answer that question because of what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews. How do we draw near to God? Remember, James here is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So he's writing to Jewish audience here. And Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience. And the whole idea was accessibility to God. Remember that? How do you come to God? Because no one came to God. Only the high priest came to God, and that once, once a year. But with the gospel comes this, no, you have accessibility to God. Come to God. This is big, big news. Well, I'll answer your question, uh, my question to you. According to Hebrews, how do we draw near to God? A couple of verses we've looked at thus far. Hebrews 10 is one of them. Hebrews 10, 19 Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, so we can enter that holy place through him, through Jesus, his flesh. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's only through Jesus that we can gain access to God. You cannot start with any other person or go by any other means. You must come to God, and to come to God, to draw near to God, means you must come to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to where? To the Father except through me. So when James says you must draw near to God, that begins with Jesus. It begins there. You must recognize what Jesus has done for you. You must recognize who Jesus is, that he is God, that he came as God in the flesh, that he dwelt as a man, and that he died for the sins of man so that we could come to God. To draw near to God really means to come to Jesus so that he can take us to God. That is the idea. He is, in fact, our high priest, is he not? He is. So that's where it begins, to draw near to him have to have a relationship with Jesus, in other words. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter what kind of character traits you exhibit outwardly. Inwardly, you are a prideful person because you still rule on the throne of your life where Christ is meant to be seated. That's pride. When I say I can rule my life better than the God of the universe who knows all things, there's nothing more prideful. I would have made a mess of my life. I often think about, what if I never got out of acting? What if I just continued doing that? You know, I don't think about, oh, I might have been rich and successful and famous and all these things. I don't think about that. It's like, how many times would I have been divorced? What kind of drugs would I become addicted to? Would I become an alcoholic? I, I look at all the things that I see all the celebrities succumb to because of the pressure of success, but ultimately because of the pride. I thank God. Instead, that he broke my pride. But we must allow our pride to be broken, and, and for that we must draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The second thing is that we must repent of sin. James tells us this as well. If you 
look at that in verse um, <clears throat> verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You must cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. To cleanse your hands, that speaks of the outward, uh, the outward action of repentance, the part that we do actually take, the steps I take to say, I no longer want a part of my sinful life. That's repentance. And so for someone to come and say, I've repented of, of sin, and they were an alcoholic, and they say, I want to leave those things behind. I want to leave the masters that I served, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, and now serve Christ. But they say, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to leave. I'm still going to pursue those things. Then they, they actually haven't repented, have they? You cannot serve both God and mammon, right? You cannot serve two masters. You serve one. And so we must repent. We must leave those things behind. That's the cleanse your hands. The other is the purify your hearts. And that's the inward attitude, the inward attitude of the heart that allows the Holy Spirit to work. I know I need a heart change. And so we let the Holy Spirit uh, do that. The inward attitude, the outward action, both of those things should elicit within us a deep sorrow over our sin. And that's what he says in verse nine, lament and mourn and weep. You ever wonder why he says, come to God? And he says, now lament and mourn and weep. This is why. Because you're coming before the holy God who knows your sin. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's recognizing I'm a, I'm a sinner. I've been laughing. I've been enjoying my life. I, I enjoy it when no, one, no one's ruling but me. But now I realize, oh, wow, I, I, am, I am a wretch. And everyone sings this song, and everyone knows the song, Amazing Grace, right? To save a wretch like me. How many times I've seen people sing that song, I go, do you really believe that what, that what you said? Now you just called yourself a wretch. Do you believe you're a wretch? You have to believe you're a wretch. You have to believe you're wretched and you need forgiving from that sin. And it takes repenting of sin, turning from that lifestyle. You know, God thankfully does not require a blood sacrifice from us. We don't have to do that. That's been covered through the blood of Jesus. He provided that. But he does require another sacrifice. In Psalm 51, 17, we're told this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's repentance. A broken spirit. I, 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 I'm done trying on my own. I'm done giving it my go. I give it to you now. A broken spirit, a contrite heart. When we truly repent of our sin, we seek God's forgiveness, then we're told that your, you, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness will be granted. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't, he doesn't back out on that deal. When you come and say, I need forgiving, you are forgiven. Praise the Lord for that. And so we draw uh, near to God. We repent of, of sin. And then we're told, we're told to, to put on humility. Now you look at verse 10. Here it says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's only the humble that God lifts up, only the humble that God elevates. He has no dealings with the prideful people. There will be one dealing with the prideful people, and that will be at the great white throne judgment. But humility is a hallmark character trait of God's people. You must, you must be a humble person to be a person of God. Colossians 3.12 says this, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, okay, because you're the elect of God, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. I read this passage at the beginning. 
Notice that Paul says, put on humility. Put it on. Okay, you've, you've gone down that road. I've, draw, I've come to, to God through Christ. I've repented of sin. And now the hallmark of my life should be one of humility. Put on humility. Just like Paul tells us to put on, off the new man and put on the new man. He does that in uh, Ephesians. Humility isn't, isn't um, part of that old man, right? He must be part of the new man. And humility must be evident in God's people. 1 Peter 5 says this, Likewise, you younger people, submit, to yourselves, uh, submit yourselves to, uh, to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in, in due time. I love this because it tells us there ought to be submission here. There ought to be submission in the life of a believer, submission of the younger to the older. Elsewhere, we're told the submission of the wife to the husband. Uh, none of these things declaring one's better or less, but submission, an attitude of the heart, a humility. Why? Because God resists the, the proud. But you notice that there's also mutual submission. Paul says the same thing in relation to a husband and wife. They submit to one another. And even here, we're to uh, submit to one another. All of us must be clothed with humility. When he says put on, Peter says clothe yourself. It's the same idea. That must be our outer uh, garment. You know, I think a lot of people have this picture that everyone, everyone in a church submits to the pastor. That's like the, how this, this whole thing uh, works. But remember, we just sang a song about the servant king. And, and the king modeled servant leadership. We, we model a, 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 a serving one another, a submission to, uh, to one another. Uh, that, that's how that's meant to be. There should be this uh, humility that is even among the leadership of the church, that we submit to one another. We hum, humble ourselves before one another. No one has power over uh, another. So this, this humility should adorn us like a raiment. We're all told to be clothed with it. What comes to the humble? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What are we saved by? Grace. We're saved by grace. So that's only, only going to come to, to people who pursue the humility. It begins with drawing near to God through Christ repenting of sin, and there we find grace, and there we dwell in humility. But we're, we're exalted in due time by God. You don't worry about you. I've always told people, you don't worry about your reputation. You worry about Christ's reputation, and he'll worry about your reputation because he says he'll exalt you in due time. In his good time, we will rule and reign with him. Amen? So don't you worry about your own Reputation. One final note. I just want to close on on this. We last week spoke about the need of the of peace of God. You remember that? We need the peace of God in a season that can be so hectic and busy. A lack of peace. We want the peace of God and how to get that. No one can have that peace of God unless they first have peace with God. It begins there. The peace of God will not come to you unless you have peace with God, because we're born enemies of God. And Romans 5 speaks of the one who has been justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with him. Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Mm, I love it.
There's the, there's the peace that we first need, peace with God so that we can have the peace of God. And that peace was promised through a marvelous prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government will be where? Upon his shoulder. Peace cannot come to us when we continue to carry the government of our lives upon our own shoulders. The government must be squarely upon his shoulders. We cannot have peace. We can't see the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. But he isn't for everyone. He isn't for everyone. He's only the Prince of Peace for those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, submitted to his rule in their lives. So, this Christmas... If you've not humbled yourself in this way, step down off the throne of your heart and just make room for Jesus to rule there. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for these amazing reminders that come from the biblical account as we look at people like Herod, as we look at the religious leaders at that time who so arrogantly missed, missed the whole thing. They missed the birth of Jesus and sought to retain their own power, their own positions. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that we would examine our own lives and make sure that we truly have made room for you to rule in our hearts because you must rule over everything. And only then can we really know that peace, that peace of God, that peace that passes all understanding. We truly just submit our lives to you. And also, Lord, can we only know true victory over uh, sin and Satan, as we're told to submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from us. It begins with our submission to you, knowing that you are the greater power that resides in us. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that your people are encouraged and edified and that you are glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.